Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. This is part two of my conversation with Jeremy Kriegel. He spoke about his origin story and some of his experiences. And when I asked him about how UX designers balance the need of helping the users to stay focused, as well as the need for users to take a break from time to time, he continues with that answer. And he talks about the micro-level thinking as well as the system-level thinking. And uh, the analogy of a relay race team member who needs to wait for the moment to take the baton and run, where there could be system-level efficiency, but there may be need for local inefficiencies. He also gives a good example of uh, a Zappos agent who supports a customer's need, even though not directly linked to business and how that indirectly leads to no more business. The key skills required for a UX professional, particularly curiosity, humility, and influencing skills is something that he talks about and how a UX designer can be a good influencer in bringing in organizational change. He mentions the limitations of canvas-based design tools and how more collaboration, being more open, understanding, exploring, and then coming up with alternatives and solutions is a better way of uh, designing effective interfaces. And to do that, lean approaches, as well as fast learning loops, are ways that he recommends. The role of design in customer loyalty and how AI-based approaches could possibly impact the UX professionals. And finally, his career tips for new entrants as well as persons considering a career switch into the UX domain. Listen on. One of the goals that typically the UX designers focus on is to help the user stay focused and then get something accomplished quickly. Now, with the uh, post-pandemic and uh, the models of uh, multitasking and things that are coming, there is on one side, we say, should not be distracted, stay focused. But at the same time, we need a little breather when we are having, say, back-to-back -back meetings or in a call center, call from one call to another to the next call. How can the user experience discipline? Take, are there any patterns that will give people a little breather? You know, somewhat like a forced Pomodoro, maybe? Or, uh, I don't know. Uh, is there any experience that you have yeah. that? So, and look, this is not just, you know, unique to UX, right? But, hmm. you know, it's that difference between kind of micro-level thinking and systemic thinking. Mm -hmm. Like, if we're thinking about optimizing a task, that's mm -hmm. one thing. Mm -hmm. if we're thinking about optimizing a flow or a day Mm. or something larger, we look at it differently. And that, you know, that larger thing will contain tasks that we want to optimize. Mm. But, 
you know, I think what's an interesting phenomenon of when you think at a systems level is you often need local inefficiencies to have systemic efficiencies. Mm. You know, I think of like, uh, not a perfect metaphor, but like a relay race, mm. you know, the last person on the leg of the relay race doesn't say, well, I'm going to go run a hundred yard dash while I wait for the first four people to bring me the baton. Cause otherwise I'm just standing here for like yeah. 10 minutes. Right. Or however long they last. I don't know. No, that person's job is to wait mm. and be there so that when that baton gets there, they can move. But not the job is not to keep that person running mm-hmm. constantly. Mm. So I think it's that metaphor applies not just, you know, how we organize ourselves as teams mm. and get the work done, but certainly when we look at these bigger flows, we want to be optimizing it probably at a higher level. Mm. So if we're thinking about I want a call center rep in this case to be um effective in terms of if I if I measure them on how many calls they do in a day, uh-huh. that's going to lead to a certain outcome. I'm going to have mm. shorter calls. They're going to want to get off the phone um, and they're going to cram them in. Mm-hmm. If instead I'm measuring them on how satisfied are customers when they get off the phone, mm. I mean, that's kind of what Zappos did. And you had some like those famous examples of, you know, people calling up Zappos and asking where can they order pizza? Mm. nothing to do with Zappos business, but these mm-hmm. people would help with anything. Mm. And did that sell more shoes? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Because we know these viral stories, the mm-hmm. free marketing and the mm. customer loyalty that they got from all that stuff was mm-hmm. well worth the mm. extra time that a call center person put in. So again, if you can take a bigger holistic view about the service or the product you're providing, mm-hmm. it might change how you look at some of these, you know, these micro tasks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, brings up probably a slightly different topic, which is the softer side. While the systems could be there, like you talked about these apples uh, helped us people. How do you get the team aligned to some of these things? And ultimately, the user experience goes beyond just the software solution that you create, right? Yeah, I think it can be it can be challenging for sure. Mm. So I don't want to make it seem like it's easy. Uh, but we have to find ways to connect those less measurable things mm. to other measurable things or find ways to measure them. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and we've had, I mean, MPS was a poor, but, you know, an attempt to do that, right? How do we take something subjective and try to make it more objective? There's other like, you know, there's system usability score. There's There's other slightly more robust ways to try and convert that subjective to something more qualitative or quantitative Mm -hmm. but you know the the more we can kind of try and draw those connections um the more effective it'll be but it's it's hard it's much Mm -hmm. easier to just look at like you know the the hard data and and drive off of that so that's i think sometimes where where it can be challenging for design folks especially if we don't necessarily understand how other stakeholders are measuring success. Indirectly, now there's a lot of talk about uh, product-led thinking, that a lot of these things would be done by the product itself, understanding the user interactions, the behavior, what they do, and then staying through with their journey and so on. With that, do you see any implication? You also talked about how gamers do that, starting with a novice and then taking one step-by-step. If the applications need to learn and understand 
the user's behavior and interaction. What are the pros and cons of where you draw the line between personalization and privacy? I mean, I think they were still trying to figure out a lot of that, though I think um, personally, I, I bias more towards the privacy, uh, you know, letting people opt in. We certainly so many examples of uh, products getting creepy. Uh, we want good service. Like mm -hmm. in some ways, we even really want targeted ads, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to see crap that I'm not interested in. I'd much rather, if you're going to show me something and I got to look at it, I'd rather see something I care about or I might be interested mm -hmm. in, uh, not something completely irrelevant. At the same time, if it's a little too relevant or a little too connected to something else that I did that I don't think you should know about, mm -hmm. you know, then like, you know, you, you browse one site and you come to another site and now you're seeing an ad for the first site. Like, wait a second. How do, how do you know about that? Mm. Um, you know, that that's where I think we're, you know, potentially starting to, to cross that line from a positive service into a negative experience. Right. Cause if an advertiser or whatever, they do something and I don't like it. Mm. If I feel like that's a violation of my privacy, mm -hmm. That then now I have a negative experience and I've just, my, my likelihood of, of buying from that vendor, that, that company just dropped through mm -hmm. the floor. Mm -hmm. um, so I think how they, how companies use that data, we have to make sure that we're staying in touch with what people's expectations are. And, and that changes, right? You know, mm. our expectations of privacy now are way different than they were 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. We have become accustomed to giving up a lot of our data whether that's good or bad, everyone has opinions on, on that. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it may be different for any given product's audience. So again, it goes back to like, know the people you're trying to serve. Mm. And ideally you're, you're trying to serve them, not take advantage of them. Yeah. And I think that's also a really important distinction. Mm. If, if you're, if you're doing something for the benefit of someone else, you can create a mutually beneficial relationship and that mm. should be the goal. Mm. If you're manipulating someone, that's probably not a good design. Mm. Maybe with some few exceptions being like the way that, um, you know, using defaults, for example, to get people to opt into retirement savings. Mm -hmm. Defaults are a way of, in some ways, encouraging or manipulating behavior. People mm -hmm. are more likely to stick with the default than change it. Mm -hmm. So if you want people to save for retirement, the best mm -hmm. thing is say, we've, we've opted you into the, for 10% of your income to go to your retirement account. If you want to change that, you can, but most people would probably leave it alone. You can mm -hmm. say that's a positive manipulation. Mm -hmm. But if you look at a lot of the way that, again, going back to games and mm -hmm. I play a lot of them, mm -hmm. the way they use um, uh, an artificial scarcity and FOMO and time to get you to spend money constantly. That's some, there's some deep psychological manipulation that goes on there. Hmm. So with all this, what would you say are the skills needed for an effective UX professional? I think there's a couple and they, I think they change as you progress in your career. And again, at least at this present moment in the beginning, well, all throughout, I guess you need a certain level of curiosity. And humility because mm -hmm. we are never the domain experts. We might become very uh, knowledgeable, but someone else will always know more than we do about the domain we're in. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So it's less that we're going to learn that and more that can we ask the good questions? Can we recognize the gaps in our understanding so that we can figure out how to fill them in and use that understanding to then create a good solution? It starts to change, I think, as you grow in your career, because as I said earlier, despite the fact that we've been talking about customer centricity and user centricity and the importance of design for decades, so many organizations still really don't have solid practices. So if you're going to get into a leadership position, you need to be able to influence. Mm. And this was real. This was, I mean, this became obvious to me, even at, you know, early on at Xerox, I was new in my career. I realized you could be the best practitioner in the world, mm. but if you didn't have good support, if you didn't have good buy-in from leadership, you weren't going to be able to do good work. Mm. So if you want to be a leader, it's not that you want to know, uh, direct people. It's that you want to create the conditions for others so they can do great work. Mm-hmm. And that is a very different practice than coming up with the vision or the strategy or, or any of that. Yeah. So the, uh, uh, can we say that a user experience professional can potentially be a change trigger or a change agent within teams? Oh, typically. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember one of the early on, it might have been Jeff Sullivan talking about how uh, Scrum doesn't cause problems, but it it reveals them. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways you bring on a UX person and probably that's going to start happening. You thought mm-hmm. what you were doing was fine and they're going to start introducing you to concepts mm-hmm. that you might not have been familiar with before. Now your eyes are open to, it may not be as good as you thought, mm-hmm. which in a healthy organization is awesome. You're like, cool. Now we know how we can get better. Hmm. Not everyone reacts that way. Some people that's threatening, like, well, mm-hmm. I came up with this. This is how it's, we've been, we've always done it. I don't mm-hmm. want to change. Mm-hmm. So that can cause a lot of friction hmm. um, in, in those scenarios. But again, if your goal is to create a, an incredible organization and serve a population that needs help, that should be a welcome, welcome information, how you can get better um, mm. but again, in a lot of organizations is really challenging, but you definitely be a change agent. Yeah. I, I've so often you... said that UX is a sales job more than oh. a design job uh-huh. because we're not, we're not engineers that mm. can just kind of go off and do a skunk works project and say, look at this great thing we did. We <laughs> could, we should release this. And people go, yeah, that's amazing. You should release it. And we're not stakeholders that can say, do this. This is the goal. This is the roadmap. Mm. Go do it. Everything we do is about influence. We have to influence the engineers, frankly, because if the engineers aren't on board, they will make our lives difficult. So mm. engineers has to have to be on board. We, we're influencing product in terms of the approach we could take, the, the priorities, the questions we need to answer. Uh, we, ha- we often, in, with some very few exceptions, have the structural authority to drive what we want forward. So mm. being good at influence becomes a key to being effective. Yeah, I've noticed that in many teams, there's a distinction between the the UX or the design part, which works more closely with the product teams, and the UI part, which is more about the look and feel and so on, which works with the engineers. So how can you get an appreciation of design uh, with the engineering teams? So the, the way I've always approached it, and, and this comes from 
again, trying to take a long view of how do I create an effective practice with an organization? If I'm going to do that, I need to have strong relationships with the people I'm working with. So my advice to people who are, especially if they're the first UX person in, is to serve the team before you serve the customer, hmm. which I, you know, is pretty uh, antithetical in some ways to what we talk about is UX. We want to be user-centered. How can I not serve the customer? But if I think, again, with a like longer term, I need to be able to build trust. Mm-hmm. And if I come into a new organization as an outsider, and when I know I'm an outsider, and I say, we got to do things differently. Everything you've been doing is wrong. Uh, mm. Here's how it should be done. That's probably not going over well. Mm. But let's say, if I can go to an engineering team and say, it looks like you're doing a lot of iteration in the code, and it's really time consuming. You guys hate that, right? Yeah, yeah, we hate that. Mm. I can iterate in wireframes faster than you can iterate in code. So we could explore different options and that'll, Mm. well, not that you won't ever iterate. We should, we'll still Mm. learn things, Mm. but we can, I can take a ton of that iteration off your plate. I'll work on products with that. We'll get the user feedback and you'll do less of that. And they go, oh, that's awesome. Mm. Great. That's less work for us. Mm. And kind of the, so it's figuring out what what is the pain that the team has Mm. that I can help with. Mm -hmm. And once I've done that, now I've earned their trust. Mm. Once, once I'm part of the team, now I can figure out how do we want to, what direction do I want to nudge them in again, not for my benefit, but for the benefit of our organization and the people we serve. Do you have any stories of uh, making some assumptions first and then that being invalidated all the time initial findings? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because we're we're all biased, and you know you're you're most unbiased when you first join a company or team because you know next to nothing. You've got that proverbial beginner's mind, mm-hmm. and then the more you learn, the more you start to internalize some of the ways things have been done. And so again, there is a skill to user research and asking neutral, unbiased questions um, that we all have to learn and make sure that we're applying when we're, when we're gathering feedback. One of the, I mean, the clearest thing for me, and I I think about a lot uh, because it's happened a lot is I'll design something I think is really clever. And Mm. usually if I think it's clever, it's bad Um, because it's too complicated. It's a little, it's just too much for what the user needs. Like simplify, simplify, simplify. There's so many times I've come up like, oh, well, I can put all these needs together in this one little thing that behaves in this kind of, you know, interesting, really interesting way. Mm-hmm. And then people use, they go, I don't like that at all. Too much, mm-hmm. too complicated. Mm-hmm. Give me something mm-hmm. simple. Um, rarely do we need to invent new patterns. There's mm-hmm. probably a pattern out there that people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. They understand it. We just need to figure out which ones do we need to assemble mm. to, to, to meet the need we're trying to meet. Mm. So rarely do we need to invent. Sometimes, mm. like, and if there's some place that you're really innovating as an organization, as a product, that might be a space that you, you do need to invent something a little different. Mm-hmm. But even more likely, you could probably still adapt from something existing. Mm. Yeah, I think it has both uh, sides. You know, two things that I'm always... Uh, intrigued about 
in terms of yes following patterns that people understand is always good from a learning curve perspective so why do we need qwerty keyboards on phones that we are using touch with probably one finger i anything i i would hypothesize uh -huh. that we're still bringing that mental model of mm -hmm. where am i going to find that letter so if you laid it out any way, any other way, I might just be hunting and pecking more because I don't know where an A is. Whereas if I'm using a QWERTY keyboard, I know that the A is going to be on the far left. Hmm. So there's been tons of studies that like a Dvorak and hmm. other layouts are far better from a ergonomics, speed, usability perspective. Hmm. But most people aren't willing to go through the learning curve hmm. to, to use them. So we're stuck with a, a layout that was not built for effectiveness. Mm -hmm. It was built so that the keys on a mechanical keyboard didn't jam. Mm. So you, because you were less likely to, I mean, the QWERTY is laid out so that keys that were often used together were far apart yeah. because you didn't want to hit them at the same time because then they mm -hmm. jammed. Whereas mm -hmm. reality, you'd want the most common keys together to make the movement mm -hmm. easier. So Again, we're just, again, one of the ways that we're stuck in with constraints from older technology and it's it, it's still affecting us now. Hmm. Yeah, same thing with uh, the gear shift in automobiles. Yeah. Particularly manual ones. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a great story, something about like how the, something about like NASA rockets are the size <laughs> they are because of like horse butts. Because yeah. at some point, the rocket had to travel through a tunnel. Uh -huh. The tunnel had been created during a time of like horses and carriages when you had to have two horses wide that had uh -huh. to go through the tunnel. <laughs> now it was a train, but it still had to travel on that yeah, train and the width of that tunnel constrained the rocket size. So again, a NASA requirement was constrained by the width of horse butts. So again, you never know what <laughs> where, you're, you know, where the constraints are coming from. Yeah. Uh, but you also have been you know, teaching UX, right? So how easy or difficult is it to teach UX or learn UX? So I'm kind of lucky in a sense that my teaching tends to be either workshops at events or guest lecturing uh, if I'm in an academic setting. So while I did do a full course early on in my career at the University of Rochester, I haven't done as much since. I'd say the downside is sometimes hard to see the impact of that. Because when you're in a a conference, you're doing a one-day workshop or something like that, or even if I'm guest lecturing, I can't always say how well people might be applying what I'm sharing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's always an interesting question. I would love more feedback from people. Like, And I ask all the time at events, no one ever gets mm -hmm. back to me. Like, how did you take the thing that we talked about mm -hmm. and apply it? Mm -hmm. um, then I would know whether what I'm doing is being effective. Um because you can say you love my talk, you love my workshop, but if if you go back to your everyday and then just back to business as usual, mm. well, it might have been entertaining at that point, but it certainly wasn't effective. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm encouraged by the enthusiasm that more and more people have to learn UX. And I see a lot of people transitioning into the field. Mm. Where I struggle is the obstacles that I believe that most of them face once they get on the job. Mm -hmm. 
I've kind of had this hypothesis and, and maybe this is just like me being, you know, an old man and kind of get off my lawn kind of thing. I've been doing this for over 25 years. Hmm. It, it sort of feels like the, well, there's more people than ever doing the work that the effectiveness per capita is lower than what I perceive it was earlier in my career. Mm. And the reason that I say that is there was so much that we used to do to better understand the problem, mm. model the problem space, model a solution. So we got that, that understanding of it and, and get more user feedback and so much of today, it feels like people is like, you know, jump right to wireframes and comps. Here's a requirement, go, go design it, not go investigate. What's the real problem is, is this the right solution to that problem? Hmm. Who has the problem? How do they think through it? Are we, are we taking an approach that's going to match their mental model? If it doesn't match their mental model, how are we going to help them adjust their mental model to match to this solution? So there's just a lot that tends to be missing. I, I used to think that I kind of joked that Envision broke UX. Mm. Um, and it, and mostly cause I, I mean, I just kind of genuinely hate any canvas based prototyping tool, mm -hmm. but I think that was more of a reflection. I mean, the reason I don't like mm -hmm. them is they make it very hard to model complex interactions. And if you can't model what you're designing to basically experience it, even as a designer, mm -hmm. then it's, you know, you're not really going to feel it until it goes to be built. Mm -hmm. And that's when you're going to start to, I mean, sometimes you don't have to do much. You just, you do the the walk through yourself and you're like yeah that's not going to work i need to change it because mm. um, no one experiences your product as a series of screens laid out side to side side by side but i think it was really more of a reflection that there was a lowering of the expectation of what design would do as more people were entering and we didn't always have great ways of training people to do that you know, to do the personas, the journey maps, the flows, gathering feedback, user research, et cetera. And they, so they, and they weren't being expected to do that by the, the stakeholders. So it's not, I don't blame anyone for it. It just, um, you know, just kind of noticing it as a pattern and trying to figure out how do we, how do we get better at it? And that's kind of what led to the, like my podcast, I haven't been doing it nearly as long as you have. Um, but, uh, you know, I saw this kind of challenge and i wanted to, to talk to other experienced people on do they see it the same way so i had a bunch of private conversations we we may have disagreed on the causes a little bit but mm. we were seeing similar patterns and kind of went wow this is this is kind of fascinating we should record these conversations and that that became the the saving ux podcast yeah yeah i was going to ask you that why is saving ux is it under threat now or... well I, again i think it's it I think there's just a lot more value we could be providing. Mm -hmm. And that means that there's frankly more money organizations could be making. You provide more value to people. You can, you'll get more users. They'll pay you more, whatever. Great. It also means that we could be making people's lives better. Mm. So, and, and again, those are, those are positive reinforcing cycles. You make someone's life better, they will pay you more. So that that's a positive cycle to have. And, and I think, frankly, people would be happier. Like the people doing the work would be happier because they would feel like they were having a bigger impact. And that's kind of like what we want with our work. We want to feel like we're having an impact. So 
if we could feel like we're having an impact while making an organization more money and um, ser- helping people live better lives, that seems like a pretty worthy goal. And I think UX could help contribute to that. We can't solve the whole problem, but I think we can help a little bit. Hmm. So where do techniques like either the, you know, the Google design sprint or the pre-prototyping kind of approaches fit in? in terms of being able to see something quickly? Yeah, well, I, I think there there's lots of useful tools out there. Hmm. So at any point in the process, what are we trying to learn? And what tool is going to help us learn that or, you know, get to what we're, you know, the, the next step in the process? Um, you know, I like I love the kind of the lean approach or thinking about like learning loops. You know, if you're going to be a learning organization, uh, you know, it's commonly said that what you learn is more important than the results, right? You have good results, great. But if you don't know why, you can't replicate it. And if you have bad results, if you don't know why, you can't really make it better. You might get lucky, hmm. but, um, you know, even to go back to the the gaming company, uh, there was a, a, a point in time where, you know, gaming companies were making a ton of money. And then the U.S. cut off the online gaming market, basically. Hmm. And a lot of companies struggled because your success, you might think it's because you're you're amazing, but you could just be lucky. You could be, hmm. be in the right market at the right time, hmm. and that can, success can hide a lot of inefficiencies. And so hmm. then when it gets hard, do you have the resilience? Do you have the, the really the strong kind of customer loyalty to survive that difficult moment? Mm-hmm. And design is one of the things that can help you not just create an internal culture that's really positive, but make sure that you have a product or service that's going to be sustainable and last through um, difficult financial times. Mm. Okay. So with the trends like uh, machine learning being applied to user experience or understanding the user behavior and having some adaptive kind of approaches, what would be the impact on UX professionals? I don't know, but I'm a little skeptical for now. I'm sure it will be really interesting at some point in the future. I'm sure that we will find ways to use it to learn maybe faster than we could otherwise. I could certainly see some benefits in the analysis space. Mm. Um, I know enough about data to make the wrong conclusions often. So yes. I'm, it's really important for me when I'm looking at data to have like someone like a, a true analyst who really understands how to, how to interpret it. And maybe that's something that machine learning could really help me understand what I'm seeing mm. and make, and make sense of it. There's a big difference between data and insight. Mm. Um, on the other hand, there's just so many examples of like AI and machine learning, just getting it wrong that I don't think that we're going to be taking the human out of the process for a while. Right. I think it's going to get a lot better. And I think hopefully we find some very positive and ethical ways to use the technology. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to maintain uh, uh, human involvement at the very least as a safeguard. Hmm. Yeah, I think we are about uh, the end of the conversation. I normally like to ask one question from all our guests, which is in terms of career advice or career tips. For two segments of people, if somebody is starting a career and wants to pursue UX or somebody yeah. who's mid-career doing something else and wants to switch to UX, what would be your advice? 
Well, let me talk to the, uh, this folks switching because I think this is a, um, I've talked to a lot of people and there's, there's a lot of challenge around how do they present themselves. And I think one thing that I certainly look for if I'm talking to a career switcher is how do they connect their prior experience to the UX work? Because if you've been doing something else for, I don't care if it's two years or 10 years or 20 years, there's something about that experience that's relevant in the UX space and probably not only relevant, it probably makes you really interesting to the right people. Mm. So if you can frame that, you know, I was a chef and what is it about being a chef, whether it's like the organization, how you think about collaboration, um, there's probably something about that, that you could tell a story related to UX and be really evocative. I and mean, when I was um, looking for jobs in the beginning, yeah, I'd run this, you know, this internal agency, this not internal, this undergrad agency mm -hmm. for a few years, but people would look at my degrees and they say, well, you have degrees in art and English. Mm -hmm. What does that have to do with design? Mm -hmm. You know, Carnegie Mellon had a design program. You didn't go to mm -hmm. that you made interactive sculpture. What does that have to do with what we're doing? Mm -hmm. And I, and so my English degree was in poetry mm -hmm. and the way I would connect that to the work was by saying, not that you should be, but you can be a little looser in prose. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get away with things there, but if you're going to write poetry, every word is important. The mm -hmm. meaning is extremely specific. And I take that attention to detail into my design work, into how I create documentation so that we communicate effectively between each other. That's how poetry connects to design. Mm. And people go, wow, okay, that sounds cool. So hey, <laughs> make that connection um, between whatever you've done and what you want to do. Tell that, tell, be able to tell a great story. Because unfortunately, I think people have a terrible imagination in thinking about how you know, most most hiring managers they want to hire someone who's already done the thing they need someone to do but that's not really what we need we need people who can be creative and i mean i love people who are are driven and kind of educate themselves and are constantly looking to learn new things cuz cuz i don't know what our next challenge is going to be but if i know i have people on my team that are going to dive into that challenge and help figure it out that is worth way more than someone who's executed on a bunch of stuff in the past yeah, that's a very positive note to end the conversation and uh, for people right. who are curious about exploring the discipline of UX. Thanks a lot, Jeremy, for taking the time and sharing your perspectives. I do have a few more of my pet peeves about user experience. Maybe we'll take that up separately. Sure thing. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.